I really do think that pictures matter, but also so do the stories that describe how these pictures were created and who was behind the camera. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. Transcripts of the show are available at journalism-history.org slash podcast. This episode is sponsored by Taylor & Francis, the publisher of our academic journal, Journalism History. World War II tends to get most of the attention when it comes to history. In today's episode, we instead focus on the Great War between 1914 and 1918 and a little-known photographer with a colorful background. Percy Brown was a photo correspondent, a magazine journalist, and yes, even a figure skater who captured significant photojournalism history during his time in captivity in a prison camp after he was accused of being a spy. Brown's story offers an insider's view to wartime reporting during World War I through a rare perspective and demonstrates why photojournalism history matters. Our guest today is Elizabeth Fondren of St. John's University, who will discuss her work, The Mirror with a Memory, The Great War Through the Lens of Percy Brown, British Correspondent and Photojournalist. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. There's so much focus on World War II, so what interested you in looking at World War I? Yes, thank you so much for the opportunity to be on, on the show. And I definitely think that's true. I think that media historians have focused on the Second World War a lot and for good reasons, of course. But I think that some of the origins and also the conflicts between governments and journalists, including, of course, um, propaganda, censorship, and the relationship between officials and war correspondents starts much earlier. So my interest in this period specifically grew really out of my dissertation, which I completed at LSU's Manship School on German propaganda in World War One. And then this is really, this article is my first biographical piece about a World War One correspondent who really got, um, yeah, who really got entangled with censors, police, military officials, and um, yeah. So we're going to focus today specifically on Percy Brown, who you describe as a British working class carpenter, figure skater, photo correspondent and magazine journalist who covered the 20th century's first mass media war. So how did you find out about him? Yes. So Percy Brown, who I guess himself, or who called his own, his, his own story, really, he called it a path of crazy paving. I think his, his life story is really remarkable. I first really um, came across his notes and photographs and also his records, his, all of his writings um, during a research trip for my dissertation at Stanford University's Hoover Institution Archives couple of years ago. And um, when I saw these primary sources, I um, I knew that I had stepped um, into a goldmine. I, you know, while my topic, the dissertation topic, of course, was different, I 
you know, was researching and I didn't see anything on Percy Brown or even scholars mentioning him in scholarship on World War One or, you know, freelance correspondence or photo correspondence. Um, so I was really excited to um, to write this article. And then, as you said, and your question really, um, he was somebody who was, we would say he was not a traditional um, journalist. He had a working class background. He had no really formal education in writing or reporting. He grew up kind of in Western England, Shrewsbury, and he apprenticed as a carpenter. We know that in the beginning of the 20th century, he worked in San Francisco for three years to rebuild the city. And then um, kind of in his early 20s and mid-20s, he was a figure skater very successfully uh, in London. And then, yeah, when the war broke out in late summer 1914, he traveled to the continent and started covering the war as, you know, somebody who was not accredited, um, somebody who had a camera, but not really, you know, training in um, in journalism. So, yes, I thought that was a really just interesting project and just person to explore a little bit more. At the start of the war in 1914, British journalists were banned from covering the war in person. Give us some context about that and when and why that policy changed. Yeah, of course. So as you say, he was taking photographs and really writing stories at a time when, you know, officially there were no British journalists allowed. That didn't mean, of course, that they were not there. Uh, We just don't really know about those who... I guess, you know, ventured out on their own. So um, what we know about the period is that mass media, newspapers, um, you know, really were the primary means through which people understood the war. And um, the British Illustrated Press, of course, relied on these type of visuals. So there was a great demand for pictures. When the war started, as I said, in late summer 1914, all British correspondents were banned from documenting the front and officially, you know, members of the military staff were taking photos. And then, you know, there's a tedious process where information was sent to London and, you know, had to be censored and then was passed down to the press. But, um, you know, over really... A few months later, the British press, who, of course, you know, supported the war against Germany and and Austria-Hungary, was pressured to give in and allow coverage of, you know, battles and troops. We also know that, you know, American correspondents, in contrast, had covered the conflict from the start. There was even a letter that was sent, you know, by the U.S. government to the British Foreign Secretary that said, without coverage and visuals of the war, uh, Britain and France could lose the battle for American public opinion. And so we think that, I think that um, this exertion of pressure had an impact on the British military, and then they loosened this um, press censorship in June 1915 and started to accredit really a small number of British correspondents and photographers. But at no time during the war was um, Percy Brown really accredited to, to do his job. Talk more broadly about the relationship between the military and the press during wartime. 
that is, you know, of course, you know, a very big topic. And um, we, what we know really about military press relations is that throughout the history of journalism, uh, war correspondents have been jailed as spies and often held back by military or police governments and, you know, censors argue that by um, restricting coverage of the front and, you know, of uh, frontline fighting, they can control information in the interest really of national security and, um, you know, safeguarding, yeah, secrets. But we also know that this, you know, policy often or does make it very difficult uh, for journalists to provide comprehensive or even objective coverage of of any conflict. So there's, you know, a long history of yeah, military restricting the access to news and information. And then also in the case of Percy Brown, I found that he often really yeah, he often really pushed his luck. He wrote that, you know, he spent many nights in French prison cells and that, um, you know, this really conflict between authorities and his access to troops, but also frontline battle was one that really characterized his experience during the First World War. Yeah, so let's talk more about Percy Brown and how he ended up uh, photographing World War One. So... Very little, as I said, is you know has been written about him. Um, so I, you know, in the article, what I tried to do is really backtrack uh, his actions and his experiences. And as you said, kind of in the intro, his experiences I think are really remarkable, but they also point point out really larger themes or the bigger themes when we think about how war correspondents source information, but also then, you know, what are the sacrifices they're willing to to make in order to do their job? So we know very little about Brown's, I guess, initial reaction when the war broke out. He doesn't really discuss, you know, how or even if he was assigned to do this work. But I see that, you know, in his records show that he arrived on the European continent in early August 1914. At that point, he was 29 years old. He had traveled from England to northern France, and uh, he was working, as I said, as a freelance journalist for the London Graphic Magazine. He was not accredited, and then through his kind of you know diary and his um, stories, I could tell that he was in Paris for a few days, but then really he spent a lot of time in Antwerp. Uh, he traveled to Ostend, which is a seaside resort, and then also to various battlefields. So the way really I tried to um, structure the article was to look at three big episodes uh, during this period of 1914 to 1920. So I look at, you know, his coverage of the Western Front. Then, you know, I'll talk a little bit about this this point more um, in a minute, but um, he spent three years in enemy prison. And then after the war ended, he was given the opportunity to, you know, go to Paris and cover the peace talks. So that's kind of how I... I guess from a research perspective, try to, as I said, backtrack his experiences. Um, yeah. Yeah, we'll definitely want to get into all of those things. So why don't you start out talking about what kind of photos he took? Sure. So um, as I said, you know, really this 
collection at the Hoover Archives is just so interesting because not only do we have really accounts and you know his his news stories his notes but we also have his pictures and I was you know very fortunate and really excited the editor of of um, journalism history provided me with the opportunity to share some of those pictures in in the actual article. You know, these pictures alone, um, they are very, let's say, the scope of the pictures is very diverse. Um, We see that sometimes brown wood axes, um, battlefields, or even cities. There's one picture that I think I included where in late September 1914, he was in the French city of Rheims, which had been, you know, Uh, destroyed by the German army. And we can see that, you know, he was standing in the middle of a, you know, formerly magnificent street or avenue. And um, he pictured this destruction. Uh, We see rubble, we see smoke. And then what we have also on the back of the photograph is his, his caption and his instructions for the photo editor. Other examples include, um, you know, People on the photos, uh, including British soldiers, he said that you know photojournalists were very popular with uh, British soldiers, which he called Tommies. He said that everyone wanted to see their picture in the newspaper. He said that he was popular enough um, to get his job done, to take photos, although he was often, as he said, um, hounded by the police and military units. Um, other photo subjects include towns, buildings that were destroyed, but we also see the countryside. We see a military vehicles and also see some pictures of Brown himself, um, which are included in the article. What I would really say is that, you know, through these pictures, um, we see really both Uh, the aggressors of the war, because we also have images of German soldiers, we have prisoners of wars, but we also see the victims and really the, um, let's say, consequences of of this war. You discussed that he ended up being arrested and ended up in a prison camp after being accused of being a spy. He was unbelievably there for three years. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So, you know, just as I was going through this this material, when I first stumbled upon his, his records, there was this um, really this gap, uh, 1915 to 1918, um, where, you know, of course, we don't really have a lot of records uh, by Brown. But then in his autobiography, he talks about how he was... Um, yeah, he was really captured by a German police unit. He had traveled to the Swiss-German border to document a prisoner exchange in the fall of 1915. And then, of course, ironically, um, he had wanted to take photos of these prisoners, but he was uh, captured and arrested himself. The Germans said that he had um, crossed enemy lines. He had crossed into Germany. And so he was transported across across the Reich um, to first to a central prison, um, Stadtvogtei prison in Berlin. And then after a few weeks, he was moved to Ruhleben, which is, you know, close to the suburb of Spandau near Berlin. And he spent three years in this civilian prison where, you know, remarkably, he continued to take photographs and he was allowed to keep his camera. In fact, um, he was also publishing about this experience, which, um, you know, that was um, 
it was just such I don't know for me it was just so remarkable to see um, you know journalism published from inside an enemy prison about the war and um, we also see that you know Brown, who was trained as a carpenter in the prison, he did not have to work. Nobody in that specific prison, British um, civilians did not have to work, but um, he was often called upon to, you know, work on carpentry um, projects. And then the other dimension, of course, of that experience is that um, this time that he spent in this prison was, you know, had incredible devastating effects on his um, mental health, his emotional health, his physical health. The um, prison originally had been a horse race um, track. And so prisoners were housed in stables. Uh, Brown talks about how these were, you know, cold and rat infested. And he also says that, you know, really after this episode, he had um, terrible nightmares, um, what, you know, I guess others would call the barbed wire disease. He was dreaming about, you know, being locked up. And he also said that his eyes had become very weak um, during this experience. He said that often they did not have enough food, um, although there were packages coming in from England. So really, you know, this part of his um, war experience, as I said, shows the sacrifice that um, he made. And then um, we also know that um, we also see um, some of some of these perspectives and experiences through, as I said, his camera. And um, there's, I think in the article, there's two pictures of him in prison. Um, so that was, you know, that was a really, I think it was just a really interesting addition to what you know what we already know about correspondence during during the war so as you mentioned earlier brown also covered the paris peace conference to some this may seem glamorous but it really wasn't uh tell us about his experience there yeah sure so the article really you know if i may go back the article opens up with the scene of him escaping from he had hoarded, you know, some some beef drippings and some chocolate, and he was, you know, as he said, bribing the German guards. They let him escape. He made his way into Berlin, and um, there, you know, he still had his camera, and he continued to cover the socialist um, revolution in Berlin. Then, you know, in early nineteen. In, in late, sorry, in late 1918, he finally traveled home to England, and uh, he was really unsure what to do next. Um, and uh, remarkably, he was contacted by the uh, director of the graphic publications, who said, "You know, Percy, or they called him Purse. Uh, that was his nickname. They said, you know, you have given us, you have provided us coverage from the war, and we actually owe you some money, and we might." Um, have something else would you like to meet with us in london and you know they he did and they had a dinner the director offered brown to cover the paris peace conference um and brown accepted <laughs> he knew that this was very prestigious yet um in his records and his memoirs he really continues to talk about how 
he felt that uh, he didn't really have the experience and he didn't really have the technical skills to do this. Um, but he was willing to take, you know, to take this chance. And um, yeah, he went to Paris and started January 19, started um, his coverage. He was, as I said, um, really critical of his own, he said, lack of skills. He said that he couldn't really compete with the real pressmen. But he called the Paris Peace Talks a story of words without actions. Um, he said that although, you know, there was so much at stake, um, statesmen often, you know, were wrangling. Sometimes they would fall asleep during speeches. And he said that to him, the entire conference seemed like a, a theatrical production, uh, like propaganda. And he was not really impressed by the swang and snobbery of the conference. So, you know, he was really frustrated. He was. He said that it was it was difficult for him to find interesting angles for his stories, um, for his photographs. And then what is really, really, really interesting is that in 1919, after a few months that he had spent in Paris, Brown was contacted by the head of British intelligence, and they offered you know for him to travel to London. He met um, at Whitehall with you know, with um, intelligence um, officials, and they asked him if he would consider working as a special agent for them. They said that he could work under the screen of the press to get information out of post-war Germany. The, you know, experience in war prison, um, during that experience, Brown had actually picked up some German, <laughs> so he was able to read German. And the um, decision that Brown actually reached was he turned down this job. He turned down doing espionage. Um, and really the irony of that offer was that, you know, he had spent three years in German prison because he was accused of being a spy. But then when he was offered this job in espionage, he also said that, you know, he was not interested. And um, so that's just a really, I think, it's just a really interesting twist of fate for him. So what happened after that? You know, what did he end up doing for the rest of his life? Yeah. So after Paris Peace Conference, he, um, you know, returned to London and he was hired as an art editor at uh, Current Affairs magazine. And he said that, you know, he had tried to avoid an office job for years, but it finally caught on with him. And he spent about 10 years uh, as a photojournalist and as an editor on London's Fleet Street, first, as I said, for current affairs and then for the Daily Sketch. His story doesn't really end there. Uh, he became a, um, you know, he purchased a number of hotels and um, he continued foreign correspondence. In 1948, after World War II, he left with his wife on a world tour, and then he eventually settled in San Francisco, where he um, yeah, became a life insurance agent. And uh, the British press, this was also interesting, continued to really um, not, you know, not uh, follow him excessively, but continue to feature small little anecdotes about him, you know, really in the late 1960s, uh, Percy Brown was his character, but also his reporting style, which, you know, was critical of authorities, which um, 
which was very versatile. He had adopted the um, nickname of um, being an onion <laughs> because he had so many layers. And so in 1916, um, a British mag magazine said that um, Brown's character and his re reporting style were instructive for younger generations because he showed how journalists can be resourceful, uh, resilient, and successful in reporting news when the stakes are high. We usually end our show asking why journalism history matters, but instead tell us today, why does photojournalism history matter? That's an excellent question. I really do think that pictures matter, but also um, so do the stories that describe how these pictures were created and who was behind the camera. I think that photojournalism history has helped us to really know more about, um, to witness and to visualize our world and especially conflicts since the mid 19th century. And I think that, you know, even today we often talk about the truth preposition and authenticity in photographs, but um, even today we need strong images to tell stories, communicate news, especially during conflicts, wars, or crises. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at JHistoryJournal. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Finneman, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night, and good luck. Good luck.